My guest today is a much sought after coach and conference speaker. His clients include the likes of Grant Thornton, Microsoft, Indeed.com, BearingPoint, and many more. An engineer by profession, he specializes in taking complex concepts in leadership and sales and creating highly practical and measurable toolkits for his clients to help them solve complex real world problems. He's the creator of the G2S coaching system, is a Marshall Goldsmith certified leadership coach and a qualified psychotherapist. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the author of three books, Invoking the Feminine, Strength, Love and Wisdom, Coaching as a Side Hustle and The Highly Trusted Advisor, How to Win Clients and Lead Teams in the Hybrid Age. Sean Weaver, you're very welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Oh, lovely to be here. Um, Sean, I want to take you back to where you grew up. I understand you're from Galway originally and then moved to Dublin. Just tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I was, uh, I was born in Banlasloe in uh, East Galway. And my mother was originally from a small town in Cullum where her family lived in Prospect House there. My dad was a teacher. He'd come down from Dublin. He was a teacher in the local technical school. They met there got married and then started raising the first part of the family in that part of the world. So I was there until I was about six. I had a fantastic time. I love the place. It's the old story. I support Dublin for football and Galway for hurling. It's just the way it works these days. So I've still split loyalties in that. But I had an amazing time and I was adopted by a family there called the Hurleys as well. So like when I was about three or four weeks old, my mother had to go back to school because she was a primary school teacher and they didn't have like mat leave back then. So they adopted me and I, I stayed with them t- was pretty much uh, until both of the parents passed on. And I still visit the family uh, scattered as they are around Galway now at this point. So it's almost, I was very lucky. I was the youngest in that family and the eldest in my own family of my own natural parents. So I had a really interesting... So you're the eldest child in... In my, in my parent, in my natural family, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. And tell me, I'm sure you're familiar with the whole birth order thing in terms of the characteristics of eldest borns. Does that fit you? Oh, yeah. It's the usual story of the eldest rares themselves or the eldest is... Actually, that's a good point. Do they, did they lavish loads of attention? I remember marching on my own to Cub Scout camp. So it wasn't the fond farewells, farewells and sorry to lose you and, and all that sort of stuff. I was pretty much brought up to be pretty independent on my own and able to... And not that they had four other, at that time, daughters to look after, and then a fifth arrived. So there was a big family. So I had a, the expectation that I had to manage on my own. And although they did obviously experiment on me to find out what worked, and then they passed that on down the generations, but it was great. Yeah, I was that, very that, fortunate. I had great parents. Yeah, yeah that, that's always the curse of the, the eldest child, isn't it? That they get to experiment and learn on you. That's it. Yeah. Tell me, you, you, you did, was it marine engineering in college, and then you joined the, the Navy? Yeah, I, actually, it was the other way around. First of all, I, did, I joined the Merchant Navy. So to do that, you had to get a scholarship on the basis of your leaving cert results and interviews. And we did all kinds of adventure exercises and all that sort of stuff. And then they selected you. And there would typically be about 2,000 applicants a year, and they would pick 15, 20 maybe to get through. So it was quite a quite an honor to get. But the reason for that was when they sent you to college, you went to Cork, what was then Cork, Cork Regional College or Cork Regional Technical College. It's now uh, Cork Institute of Technology. They put you through three years of fully paid education. You were effectively working 
but you were learning on the job. You got your, I forget what it was, HDIP or whatever it was in engineering, and then you went to sea then as an engineering cadet, and then eventually you became an engineering officer after about a year and a half of service, or about a year of service. What was that like as a career, as, as a period in your life? It was, it, first of all, I had a ball in college. It was a great time, surrounded by a great bunch of people. Got to know and love Cork, and the people in Cork, a fantastic place. But being actually at sea as a cadet and then as an officer was amazing. I had three tours of duty while I was away, two of them for about six months in length, and then the last one was about two months. So I was overall about a year and a half, about 14 months at sea. The first ship was a small 20,000 ton product carrier, and she was based out of Hong Kong. So we got to Singapore, we got to places people here will probably never see, like New Britain and New Caledonia and New Mia and Papua New Guinea and all these various amazing places. Hawaii, would you believe, for an afternoon. Fiji for an afternoon. So she was a small product carrier. Then the next ship I was on was 125,000 tons. So she was starting to get into that very large crude carrier area. And that was another six month trip on that. And then my last ship was over a quarter of a million tons in size. So she was just enormous in that respect. She couldn't come into port anywhere. But it was just an amazing experience, a fantastic experience. One on, on the middle of the ship when we were at sea, we were actually at sea for three months without sight of land. And being oil tankers, oil is a tactical product. So what happens is they would keep a tanker at sea until the price would go somewhere else and then they'd send you there and then it goes up somewhere else and then they send you there. So it was an interesting, interesting job. It, it, it was a tough job. It's a physically tough job. It's a mentally tough job, but it was an amazing experience. I, I had the good fortune of, of going through the Suez Canal doing my bridge work that week that we went through the Suez Canal. And that was just an extraordinary experience going through the Bitter Lake. Sean, I'm really curious, your experience in the Navy, what, what did it teach you about life? I think the two things, probably a couple of things. I want to talk you mental resilience. When you're sitting on a ship with maybe 10, 11 other officers and maybe 20, 30 Indian crewmen, you do tend to face tough challenges. You're separated from home, you're separated from your family. Like when I was back there, we didn't have mobile phones. There wasn't internet access. There wasn't quick access. So you had to live with that. You wouldn't get communication from home until you made port or until it was flown out. So you wouldn't get letters or communication. There's an isolation there in some respects. So the ability to deal with isolation, to deal with loneliness. The other issue is obviously learning to get on with people. You're in very cramped quarters with a certain number of people, all of which have different personalities. And regardless of whether you like it or not, and don't forget it's a hierarchy as well. So you have a, either the master of the ship or a chief engineer, the first officer, second officer. You are in a hierarchical structure. So you need to be able to get along with people and most importantly, get your job done. Most important, focus on the job, deliver on the job. You do your part as part of a team because it's very much a team. If you think about a ship that's a quarter of a million tons or half a million tons or, or 125,000 tons doing its job and that team is dependent on getting it from A to B, and make it work along the way, everybody plays a part. So teamwork, resilience, the importance of making the effort to get on with people and doing the best you can in that space, they'd be the primary lessons. But also it fulfilled my thirst for adventure, if you will. So I got to see some stunning sights when I was at sea. It's some amazing, the fact that you could smell land three days before you got there, because you're not smelling land when you're way in deep sea. Watching, we passed, <clears throat> excuse me, Krakatoa, the volcano, and the movie was east of Java, but actually it's west of Java, it's his actual position. And you could see this ring of volcanoes at nighttime in the Pacific area, 
and then you'd see these amazing lightning storms. It must have looked like the front in 1914-18 war with the artillery going off. Just incredible scenes, incredible experiences. Wow. I'm curious about something else. Are you the type of individual, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask the question, who likes to be told what to do? Or are you much more of a kind of a, I'll decide. That's a really good question because I, 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 when you serve in the Merchant Marine or the Navy, you have to take orders, right? And there is a saying, I think it's Lao Tzu, that says that in order to be a great leader, you must first learn to take orders. I guess I learned to take orders in order to become a leader. Maybe that's right. Say again? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm just thinking maybe that's where I've gone, I've gone wrong in terms of being a great leader because I'm not. And it, maybe it's that, be, and, and you're right, that first before you can be a great leader, you have to be a great follower. Yeah, my, my dad, thank God he's still with us, he's 92 now, but he used to be a commandant in the uh, Army Reserve. And he would always say, never ask your man to do something you're not prepared to do yourself. You know, which I think is an important lesson in life. Never, if you're a sales leader or sales manager, never ask your guys to do something you don't want to do yourself because they'll see that in it. They'll see it in your demeanor. They'll see it in your communication. They'll see it in your lack of congruence when you communicate it. And so they won't be enthused or expect to do it. But if they know that you'll step in and do it if they won't, that's different. Yeah, yeah. You're also a fourth Dan, uh, yes. martial artist. What? Yeah. What style? It's called Bujinkan or Ninpo Taijutsu to the, to the okay. more general world. What are the core tenets of that? It's effectively, uh, most people will know it as ninja, effectively. So ninjutsu is the art of enduring, surviving and thriving. It's the last of the martial arts to come out of Japan. I started training in the late 80s in it. I did about 20 odd years as a, as a student. I've had a break for the last 10 years, but I'm going to go back because it's just so deeply ingrained in me. So if you imagine those black robe ninjas, assassination, infiltration, survival, combat. And this is interesting because it's, you talked about being a leader and a willingness to take order. There's another side of my personality, which is very much the rebel and very much the innovator and very much doing things my way. And that kind of appeals to me in terms of that particular art. It allows you to do that. It requires discipline, requires respect, but it doesn't do things the way everybody else does it. And it uses surprise and difference and concealment and sneakiness in order to accomplish its objective, which is survival. And actually just maybe to put it all together for you, I did a speech. I closed the Global Speaker Summit in Vancouver in 2013. And the speech was called Rebel in a Business Suit. And I chose that title because that's who I am, effectively. I look, and I, it comes out of something my dad said to me. He saw me leaving the office to go to a job once, and he saw me dressed in my suit and tie. He says, Sean, you look like the suits. You act like the suits. But you don't think like the suits, do you, son? And I said, no, dad, I don't think like the suits. So I can fit very well in the corporate space, and I do. I recognize the, 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 the hierarchy and the values and all that. But really, my job is to give them different insights, different ways of looking at things, different ways of doing things that help them take, make stuff happen and to go outside the culture if needs be to look at things from a different perspective. Because it's the old Einstein thing that if you keep doing things the same way, expect a different result, that's the definition of madness. So you've got to do things differently sometimes in order to get a different result at the end of the day. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well because you talk about the... It's almost, I don't want to say corporate misfit because it's not a misfit, but it's maybe a corporate maverick is probably a better term. And that you have, there's a lot of parallels that I see between your experience in the Navy in terms of hierarchy, structure, discipline, persistence, uh, resilience, and your martial arts 
artist experience as well, which has all of those traits, plus the innovation, the, the creativity, the, think, the strategic thinking. So the, the, there's actually quite a lot of parallels between those disciplines and the corporate space. Oh, yes. I guess the only difference that I can see are the sense of mission and purpose. Yeah, I, different, I think, and you might I, have a different personal one to say. Yeah, I suppose if you look at it, I work. I've been working for myself for quite a long time now, but I work very comfortably in middle to large companies, and I work and I understand their challenges. I understand the issues that individuals have there, that teams have there, and I suppose in some respects, on the outside, I'm able to bring in new ways of looking at it, new ways of doing it that helps them accomplish their mission, if you will, or help them accomplish their objectives. If you think about it, a lot of my work is working as an executive coach with middle and senior executives. So a lot of it is about changing perspective. It's not as if people don't have a lot of talents and abilities and expertise and experience. Sometimes what's holding that back is their perception of themselves or their perception of the situation. So by being able to tweak that perception, all of a sudden you release a lot more talent and ability that people naturally have or give them a process or a methodology. And it's and, and Paul, your experience from working with sales teams, you'll understand it as well. Like a lot of sales teams are very good, but there's so much more potential in them if only they can see things from a different way, have a different way in defining their clarity, and have a different set of skills in order to accomplish their objective, whatever that might be. So it's almost the rebel in a business suit is almost that we had the suits are the objectives that we have to accomplish, but the rebel is the passion, the motivation, the enthusiasm, the ability to do things differently to get there. It's and it's when you put the two together. That's a powerful combination. It's like masculine being the suit, feminine being the rebel. Does that make sense? It's this balance. And again, that's martial arts. It's yin and yang, the male energy, the feminine energy. It's all about balance and, and utilizing what you need to use to accomplish whatever the objective happens to be. Do modern day corporations want rebels? You know, it's a good question. I think we're going through a massive change at the moment, which is the fact that we're moving to a hybrid world. And it's not going to go away. I've been talking to clients of mine who are consulting organizations and, and various others, and they say it's not going to go away. We're, we're going to be in a hybrid world from now on. It's a digital world and it'll be a live world as well. And I think it's the idea of being a rebel is not the way necessarily people perceive it. Somebody asked me, what's the difference between a troublemaker and a rebel? And I say, well, a troublemaker is only in it for themselves. A rebel's in it for the benefit of everybody else. Does that make sense? So, yeah, it's like you're saying a kind of rebel is more like a disruptor. Is that, would that be yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so a change agent. Because it's there to benefit everybody. It's not about them. Troublemakers are just interested in themselves, but rebels are interested in the good of everybody. That's the key. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. It does. It's, it's important to distinguish between the two. Tell me, you, I'd like to understand a little bit more about how you got from Merchant Navy to coaching and speaking very different career path <laughs> you have to help me join the dots there okay i came out of the merchant navy basically mid to late 80s ocean tanker fleets were being uh, just wiped out really i didn't work for bp but bp laid off 600 officers and men in a single day so i could see the writing on the wall it's probably not something i want to be doing going forward it doesn't look like a very stable career not that i was looking for a job in the bank which back then was a really secure job and um, this adventure idea was still a part of me so i came i came ashore i got a job in sales i did a couple of courses as we did back then FOSS courses and what have you and realized i wanted to be in sales and i went into sales in the technology area and ended up going from being a sales executive through to manager to eventually being a sales director of, of a company 
And when I was sales director of the company, another company, guys I knew came to me and asked me, would you come and train our guys? And I said, I wouldn't know how to do that. I've never trained anyone in my life. And they said, no, no, just teach them how you sell. Because I happen to have a, an ability at that, shall we say. And of course, it's not that I was a natural engineer, but, I, but because I had poor eyesight, which is why I couldn't go as a deck officer. So I went and got myself a scholarship as an engineer instead. And the one thing I do have is if you give me an objective, I'll meet the objective. But being trained as an engineer is probably one of the best things that could ever have happened to me because it gave me that structure, that logical way of looking at things. So I could see big picture stuff, but I could break it right down into simple practical stuff, which is a gift I've carried with me for years. So I, I think you said it earlier in your introduction, I get to see very complex and big concepts, but I'm able to break them down into really simple, applicable, easy to use steps that, that anybody can then embrace and master this particular thing. So I went out and I, I did my flow charts on, <laughs> on how I would do a sale or whatever. I did a half day with them, absolutely got buzzed by it. I just loved it. And within a year, I'd met a, a colleague and uh, we'd set up a company and we set up a, a management and sales training company. And I was with that company till 2003 when I set up on my own and um, have been operating in my own practice ever since as a, a coach and as a trainer, and as a speaker. Now, along the way I did- Effectively break something as complex as sales down into consumable pieces and transfer it? Uh, simple answer is yes, absolutely, most definitely. And I know what you're getting at. You're talking about that those intangible elements of trust and rapport, the elements that we need that allow people to engage with us, all of those little hidden unconscious messages that we communicate to people that we're not getting a chance to do live anymore. We're in this two-dimensional. The reality is yes. There are, there are two elements to sales. There's the process aspect of sales, which is the system, whatever that happens to be that you're using, which is great. This is how you prospect. This is how you do proposals. This is how you follow. They're the mechanics, if you will. But the real soul, the real spirit of selling is how we connect with each other, how we communicate, how we influence. And I say it's not really about connection, it's about how we communicate, how we influence and how we engage with people. How do we value people? And, and so there are very specific elements of that. And I, I could break it down very simply, there's about six primary elements involved in doing that and becoming what I call a highly trusted advisor. The first is mindset, motivation and messaging. You gotta have your mindset right. A lot of guys see selling not necessarily as a high status job, they see it as something they have to force onto people, which is completely the wrong mindset. Selling is about being of service. It's about finding the problems your clients have and then delivering a solution for them. And if you don't have a solution, you don't try and shoehorn something into it, you refer it to somebody else and you still do them a favor and you look after them. You have a duty of care for people. The motivation piece is important because all of us as individual salespeople are CEOs of our own unique businesses. And whatever we earn and however we earn it, that's down to us. And then the messaging is critical. A lot of messaging, even still, Paul, and you have seen this yourself, is very company focused. We have 40,000 people. We've been around 30 years. The reality is nobody cares. So what you've got to learn to do is make your messaging emotionally compelling. Because emotions drive our buying decisions. Logic is only a small part. We just use that to justify what happens. The next thing then is going to be your ability to be able to network effectively, to build your brand, to build your presence, to be known in the marketplace, and to know how to do that and not sell, but build relationships. To know how to use advanced questioning and influencing skills so you can be mastering any meeting at any point, understanding what drives people's decisions to buy, understanding how to overcome objections in a simple persuasive and yet a relevant and ethical way. Knowing how to, the psychology of presentations, the way we do pitches is completely changed. It's a whole new psychology 
And most people don't know that. Even the way we structure our presentations need to change. The ability to recognize and work with different personality types. If somebody's not the same as you, that's not a reason to walk away. That's a reason to try harder. But get educated on how to do it because it's possible. And then lastly, something that's become even bigger over the last year is the capacity to manage your personal boundaries, your time, your focus, your capacity to be competent and ability, your ability to manage how you engage digitally and then how you do all of the stuff I've talked about in a digital realm. And all of that can be broken down and all of that can be taught in things that doesn't require any blind faith or belief. No massive theories are required. Just simple, practical steps that get you from A to Z. And that's the key. And actually, that's, I mean, that's effectively the work that I do with a lot of companies. I'm curious, can, can you be, you talked about the importance of emotion and messaging and not relying on just data and, and, int, and in, intellect. Can you have too much of that in a message? And where I'm coming from on this is that if I listen to a lot of the currently the public health messaging, it's heavy on fear. Yeah. And as a result, there's a genie now that they're going to struggle to put back in the box. Yeah. And maybe that context is out of scope. I don't know. But I'm just curious what your own thoughts are on that balance in, in messaging. I think that's a good question. I think whenever you structure a proper sales message, the first part of that message has to sell to the heart and it has to be a positive message. Right. The problem with negative messages, this fear that you talk about, is that there's two forms of motivation. There's a way from motivation, which is fear based, short term, stress based, stress based. And really, it's only designed for one off sales. You're never going to build. That's a transactional relationship. You're never going to build a long term monetary value relationship. And as you say, if you install enough fear in people, they just shut down. So you've got to instill positive emotions. But the other part of a good sales message is that it has a logical reason for why the emotion of peace. In other words, this is what you're going to get. This is the value it's going to deliver. But this is why it's going to do that for you. This is how it's going to do that for you. So something like, for example, well, let me take, I, I call the concept of points of compelling relevance. So USPs, most people are familiar with, unique selling points. But everybody, anybody who's a professional will tell you, there's no such thing as unique selling point. Everybody's got the same. And they just sound the same. We're a one-stop shop. We've been around 20 years. We've been whatever. First of all, they're all co company-centric. And second of all, they're not, there's only two questions the client's asking when you tell them that. Well, so what does that do for me? So, but if you take something like a one-stop shop and say, you know what, we're going to save you an enormous amount of time and we're going to make life so much easier for you there's the emotional piece because we're a one-stop shop. Now you've got an emotional reason to buy and you've got a logical reason to justify why you can deliver the emotional value. That's a very simple example. But the difference that makes is I guarantee you, you line up three of those in a row relevant to your business on a phone or a Zoom call and you've done the hardest thing that is to do in the digital world today, get their attention. Because we live in a world of mass distraction and the biggest challenge sales guys have had over the last year since the beginning of COVID is how do I grab and hold the attention of new prospects? And the only way you're going to do that is if you stimulate their emotion and you speak in a way that's compelling enough for them to want to listen. Makes sense. Makes sense. I'd like to talk to you, Sean, about your books. And the, the one that jumped out at me was the book titled The Feminine. And... What struck me about that was that in, in your bio, you talk about the future being genderless, but you talk about, was it not, what was it, finding the feminine? You have to help me out with Invoking that. the feminine. Invoking, sorry, invoking the feminine. 
and help me square that circle between invoking the feminine and this idea of the leadership being genderless. Yeah, apart from obviously my martial arts background and engineering and psychotherapy and all that, I have a spiritual interest as well. So I have an interest in Celtic spirituality, an interest in alternate belief systems, shall we say. And even if you go back to martial arts or you go back to whatever, you, this concept of the yin and the yang idea that we talked about before, the yin being the feminine and the moon, the yang being the, the sun and the thing. A lot of our belief systems, take traditional religion, for example, is, is all masculine based. Right? God is male. Well says everything is the priests or imams or rabbis or whatever it's all a masculine and our entire world has been shaped by that for the last three four thousand years so we live in a hierarchical environment we've had this patrimony thing that they talk about in terms of very masculine values that drive the world now at the beginning of our existence we needed that we were stone age gatherers hunter gatherers we needed to put order systems we needed to compete we need to have ambition we need to have logic and that's the sort of thing that allows us to project our consciousness out into the stars and onto the surface of mars because of logic technology engineering structure all that sort of stuff and, that, and that's absolutely critical the problem is the world has become too focused that way so technology is our savior yeah, it's a tool, but it's not our savior. Or you'll see elements like particular leaders around the world who are lauded for being strong men. But the reality is, with anything, if you go too far out of balance with something, it's going to come crashing down. One of the secrets of martial arts is take an enemy's balance. Let, let him overbalance, and then he's yours. You can do whatever you want then. And what became very clear to me, has for, you know, let's say 30 years, has been this absence of the feminine. If you look at women... Even women who aspire to leadership have to become masculated in the modern world. They have to act like men, behave like men, be like men. Okay, that's fair enough. But here's the thing about leadership. Leadership is no longer about command and control. Leadership is about service. Leadership is about how do I create the environment in which my people can excel. Not me being the expert and telling you what to do, because then all the accountability is on me. And I don't release and unlock the capability that people have within me. So, so when I say leadership is genderless, or even sales is genderless, if you will, it's about we have to learn to honor, to respect, to invoke, to apply feminine, what would have been termed feminine values in the past. Encouragement, nurture, compassion, synergy, and networking. These are fundamental skill sets to allow us to remain successful in the modern world. And actually in the book, Invoking the Feminine, I talk about in 2011, there was some research done by two professors in Harvard, which indicated that if you want to make a group smarter in its decision making, you add women. Right? Because if you get an all male group, you tend to have this alpha hierarchical structure. So the boss man says we do something, everybody goes along with that. Very few people will step out of line and challenge them. But women don't think that way. Women think differently. Women converse, they discuss, they engage, they synergize. And so what they showed was if you put more women in, into the group, and it was still, by the way, a mixed group, so it's not an all-women group or an all-men group, you got better decision-making. So it became blatantly obvious to me that if you look around the world around us, if you look at politics, you look at how we handle the health crisis, you look at all of those things, the people who are supporting a huge amount of that are women or people capable of using feminine values and yet we're trying to get women to give up the feminine values and become more male in order to become leaders when that's not the future of leadership the future of leadership is like a great martial artist a great spiritual person a great leader is that they can recognize and bring the two into balance regardless of whether they're male or female
that's the power so i can be an expert i can be an engineer but i also can be a very persuasive engaging influential caring person around people so i can use my knowledge to strengthen them to accomplish more than i or my team on my own that's what i mean by leadership being genderless yeah I, it certainly is something that i've experienced over the last few months where i've begun to interview far more female leaders and you get a sense of that very strong sense of that you're right before if you go back to say margaret thatcher as an example was more masculine than her cabinet in, yeah. in, in terms of characteristics and traits yeah i think that's a great example if you look and but you look at new zealand's prime minister today she's strong highly competent very successful but she hasn't sacrificed any of her natural mm. energies or traits or abilities and can stand up there with her she's a classic example of somebody's perfectly balanced those energies and what we're all capable of becoming and being yeah yeah no for sure so that 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 concept in your book is a very i don't know esoteric is the right word it's oh, a philosophy. esoteric is the right word it's the book it's, it's practical it's practical well, it's yeah but i think esoteric is the right word i've spent yeah large part of my life studying esotericism and mystical concept. The book Invoking yeah. the Feminine is a story. It's a really short book. It's like yeah. 56 pages. No, it, it is. It's, it's... But it's about a father talking to his daughter who's just lost their mother. And he takes her through a whole experience of, what, of visiting what I call the divine feminine. So he meets the different three different aspects of the feminine. The warrior, who's the maiden. The healer, who's the mother and the mystic who is the crone or the old woman and they each give her a lesson in life but obviously it happens to be a little girl or a, not a little girl but a young woman but actually it's, it can be me it can be you it can be anybody the gender is not important it's the lessons from the feminine aspects of the universe that helps to strengthen them and their capability so it's designed as a story it's mm. a metaphor and it puts those concepts across so it's not some big heavy theoretical <laughs> tome on leadership yeah. or anything like that i know i get it i guess what what I'm looking at is that which is again esoteric. It's a philosophy. It's practical. It's it works at so many different levels. Then your next book is entitled C A S H Cash Coaching as a Side Hustle. Like you couldn't get more different wow. in terms of a, a body of work. How did you decide on that? What why was that the next book? Actually, so it's a, it's called Cash. <clears throat> coaching is a side hustle so the, and the mnemonic is about making cash as a coach whether it's whether it's something you learn as an additional skill as a leader or a manager or whether it's something you choose to do when you get out there but actually what catch is is a rewrite of my earlier book in 2001 called the business coaching revolution which came out just as coaching was started because i've been involved in coaching since 97 so i'm probably the first in fact i'm pretty sure i'm the first professional executive coach in this country because I had to cold call for a year to get my first client because nobody knew what it was about. And it was introduced to me through a gentleman called Dr. Dennis Wakeley. He was a behavioral psychologist, fantastic speaker, author of many books. He was the psychologist on the NASA moon missions for NASA. I was very fortunate to, to have worked with him, to be mentored by him for a couple of years. And he introduced me to coaching. And hence the whole thing started in 1997. But coaching as a, as a side hustle is, it, it's, not, it's obviously my work. It's been my work for a long time. But it effectively is a manual to help anyone go from, and I've used this, ter this terminology before, A to Z in terms of coaching. If you know nothing about coaching, 
it'll take you up to the next level. If you're already an existing coach, it'll take you to the next level. If you're a manager and need to learn how to coach, it'll take you to the next level. But in terms of it being massively different from something like, say, invoking the feminine, not necessarily. Because if you think about what a coach is doing, he or she is looking to create the environment in which you, as the client, excel. They're looking to synergize their expertise, their own experience, their perception to make, I, I often talk about coaching as two minds working on one agenda. You think about it, working with an external coach is like working with someone who's not caught up in your life, doesn't benefit from you engaging, has no, no downside or upside if you happen to be amazingly successful, just personal satisfaction, the job well done. That's a huge value. Now tell me that isn't the feminine support development. And then you do what I do, which is teach people a methodology yeah. and a process, because being an engineer, <laughs> what gets measured gets done. And we're back to the same principle, the integration of the masculine, the integration of the feminine, and the success of the individual on the basis of using that particular process. Yeah, that makes sense. And actually, when I think in martial arts as well, it's, I see that yin and yang symbol in, is it Kung Fu that used that as well? So there's an element of that in it. That's interesting. And... To me, when I read the title, Coaching is a Side Hustle, it seemed to me to be people who wanted to maybe dip their toe into coaching, maybe as a career. Would it be suitable for somebody like that? Absolutely. It's designed for two people. It's designed for, as I said, leaders and organizations who maybe haven't used coaching before. I want to explore that a bit more. And for them, it's a kind of a side hustle because they're just starting to learn the skills and yet they still see themselves as leaders. But the actual reality is, Coaching, particularly in the hybrid age where we're operating more remote and more distant, is the leadership skill of tomorrow. There is an increasing need all the time for leaders to move from command and control and competition to coaching and synergy. The problem is there's lots of different sort of generalized models like Grow and T-Grow and all that sort of stuff, which are fine, but they're not specific enough to operate in what I term high-performance environments, like a sales environment, for example. A high-performance environment needs something that is structured, process-driven, measurable, and yet at the same time is aspirational. So it's designed for anybody in an organization who needs to look at coaching as their next leadership skill. But equally, it's also targeted to people who are saying, you know what, I've got a lot of expertise, I'd like to build a side hustle maybe as a coach or I'd like to go into professional coaching. It's the second fastest growing industry in the world today. But what's of interest to me being a coach for as long as I am, I'm interested in helping people be highly competent, structured coaches that have a methodology that delivers value for their client right from the very first session. So it's not overly conversational based, although we can have conversations. It's not therapeutic based, which you do see in some elements, like counseling elements. Tell me about your past life. Not relevant. I'm sorry, coaching is about where are you now, where do you want to go? You want to get into counseling, you want to deal with the root issues that cause the behavior, then you're not coaching anymore, okay? This is about how do I help you as an individual accomplish your objectives, whatever they happen to be, in order to help you take control of your future and your performance and your remuneration and your executive presence and your communication skills and all the other stuff that you need to be at the top of your game. That's what coaching is about. What I'm interested in is you're a psych trained psychotherapist and yeah. I've used a psychotherapist and to me that feels like coaching. So help me understand the, the difference between the two. Yeah, that, that, that's an excellent question. When I train coaches, because we have an executive coaching school as well, I make a clear difference between counseling or therapy versus say coaching or mentoring, for example. Okay. So 
Now, a lot of counselors say, we, we can coach people, we can talk about the future, and yes, they, in some respects, but that's not our primary purpose. As a psychotherapist or as a counselor, your job is to look at, look at what's called root issues. So root issues are originating events that have affected and currently impacting on your behavior. Anger issues, dependency issues, addiction issues, abusive issues, whatever it is that you're doing that's causing issues for you and the people around you is rooted in an originating event or an origin event as a result of something happening to you. That's what their primary focus is about. How do we revisit that? How do we uh, reframe that? How do we release the negative energies and emotions about that so that that impacts and then teach you how to handle your emotions or teach you how to handle your behaviors at the present time? That's the fundamental purpose of psychotherapy and counseling. Okay? Coaching, I, I wrote a small post a long time ago saying there's no Kleenex in the coaching room, which means that we don't release negative energies in a coaching environment. I don't care if you didn't have access to your teddy bear when you were three years old. Not my issue. My issue is where are you? Where do you want to be? How do I get you there? So it's very positive. It's very focused on outcome, success, and performance. Coaching for me concentrates on two things, right? And I work in the leadership and the sales space. Building your capacity to communicate excellently and driving performance on the back of that. So that might do with maybe how you're speaking at a conference, or you gotta build your executive presence, or you need to get recognized and acknowledged for your work, and all that sort of stuff. So it's very mm. much about positive change mm. enabled by an individual who knows what he or she is doing, understands where they're gonna get you, helps you articulate that, helps you put the right language about it, and then puts a frame around it by which we can work on it together. And a very important element of this as well, Paul, is they introduce personal accountability into the process. And by personal accountability, I mean that the coach holds you as the client personally accountable to yourself to deliver on what we've agreed to work on together. And that's the dynamic that makes good coaching work. This seems to me to be though that there are, there are techniques and technologies that are applicable to both. Yep. Like you're an NLP practitioner. Master practitioner. Techniques like re, re, sorry? Master practitioner. I beg your pardon, master practitioner, that there are techniques like reframing, for example, yes. you mentioned in, in psychotherapy, you're helping people reframe, reframe past experiences. I would imagine also as a coach, if you're helping somebody, for example, they've got a big presentation to give and you're coaching them for that, that there may be an element of that as well, particularly if there's some blockages and fear involved yeah. in that, that you might use some of those techniques as well. Yeah, I, I, but the difference is, you might be, a lot of people struggle with confidence sometimes. It might look right, but they struggle internally. Imposter syndrome, for example, is an issue. But that's not necessarily a therapeutic mm. issue. That's just because they now feel they've got into a role that they haven't got the competency to do. Sometimes they just need to be reminded, well, you wouldn't have got the role if other people didn't believe you can do it. And now what I, I just normally get people, look, keep a diary for the next three months. Note it every day a victory that you've done, a contribution that you've made. And then when you feel that way again, go back and look at it. So it's a reframe process, which is very powerful. But the other thing is comp confidence is an issue that comes up. But really, I always say competence precedes confidence. So if you're going to speak there, I've been a professional speaker oh. for years. I speak at sales conferences, did speak at sales conferences all over the world. <laughs> Although I did do a presentation to a mining company in Zimbabwe yesterday, would you believe? And then ended up with a client in, in, in San Francisco. So I pretty much covered the world yesterday from the beauty of this lovely office of mine. But confidence, if you want to be a really good and a really engaging speaker, there are techniques, there are competencies, there's capability. And the funny thing is when you learn those things and you learn how to create a title and engage as people and how to open the, the conversation, how to deliver the middle bit and all that sort of stuff, 
That's where the confidence comes from. Confidence is a really interesting thing. Nobody's confident about something they do, or nobody is not confident about something they do all the time. So it's a little bit martial arts, if we go back to that again as a core, repetition is internalization. The more often you do something, the neuroplasticity that exists in the brain allows you to reform new neural patterns and new behaviors. And you don't have to be a neuroscientist to do it. You asked me earlier, can something like sales, the, the subtlety of sales or the, the intangible aspects of sales be taught? And again, I say yes, absolutely, to anyone. But somebody with 30 years of experience I've had on my programs where they said it's completely reprogrammed my mind around sales to guys who are just coming in for the first time. It's applicable to everybody. Yeah. What then, what I wanted to explore, because I'm, I'm just conscious of time, Sean, is the High Trust Advisor yeah. and your latest book. Talk to me about that. What were the key concepts behind it? What are they, the key messages in it? Why, why would somebody want to go out and buy that book? Good question. I, I, the Highly Trusted Advisor, and it's actually how to lead teams and win clients, is really a rewrite again of a book that came out in 2013 called The High Trust Advisor at the time. So there's two elements to, to be aware of. One, in the noughties, we had all of those issues with banks failing and financial markets and, we, and the government and the churches and all that sort of stuff. And there was a massive crisis of, of confidence, massive crisis of, of trust in the world. And so my concept around it was very simply that it's not enough just to trust somebody anymore. You have to have a highly trusted relationship. And, and the difference between that is we know people in our lives. There are people that we like in our lives, but we don't trust them entirely in our lives. We limit what we share with them. We limit what we explore with them. But then there are people that we have no hesitation with, no reservation with, no limitations with. We have just such a compelling level of trust with them. We share everything with them. That's when you become the go-to person. If you have clients who call you, even when they get a quote from somebody else, because they want you to match it. That's a person who sees you as their high trust advisor, because they have that level of trust that you will care for them, look after them, do your best for them, make sure it works for them. And they don't trust the other guy. That's why they're calling you. And that's the quality of the relationships that we need to have both as leaders with our colleagues and stakeholders and absolutely definitely with clients in particularly in this digital and remote and two-dimensional world we're now operating in what I call the hybrid age. We need to really become highly competent in our abilities to build high levels of trust with everybody right from the start and that's why it's such a crucial thing. Why would you want to buy the book? Because the book breaks down all the elements you have to go through in order to do that from networking to build executive presence to get access to new clients to how you shape your messaging to IQ versus EQ to working with different personalities to the pitching skills to goal setting managing your time how to build your brand in the digital space because it re it's rewritten it for leaders and the digital space as well as sales guys because really these skills are not optional anymore we absolutely need to have them in order to be the best that we can be in the world that we're now inhabiting. It makes perfect sense. And I, th and I think it's more needed now than, than ever, which probably why it's got its update. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, you, you, you mentioned spirituality and I, I saw somewhere that you're very, you have a strong interest in Celtic spirituality. What's Celtic spirituality? What defines that versus spirituality in general? Yeah, I think Celtic spirituality is, is spirituality that was, was existed in this country before the introduction of Romanized or pre-Roman Celtic or not Celtic but Christian faith. So the belief in Jesus Christ and all of the other stuff that comes with that. So for example the Christian belief is what we call a solar 
religion. So that's what you'll see churches are east-west facing, right? The previous Celtic religion would have been lunar-based, so it would have been strongly feminine-focused. It would have been focused around the moon, although it did take into consideration the sun as well in terms of its movement for calendar health. We have these marvellous monuments that we have around Ireland and, and particularly mm. Europe. So the, it's almost like it's, it, was, it, it would have had the concept of an earth mother rather than a sky god, which the Christian and Islamic and Judaic faiths tend to have. So it's much more around the feminine aspect of life. And actually, it, I think that's demonstrated if you look at Celtic culture. So, for example, Celtic women would fight on the battlefield with male warriors. Not unusual to see Celtic feminine princesses and queens with power of their own. You had Queen Maeve who launched the Tombow Cunha, which is the capital of Cooley. She was an equal to her consort or king. You would see women who were druidesses or priestesses or all of, they would have been speakers and, and poets and, and judges, brehens back in those days. So if you look at her own culture, it indicates a very strong balance between that masculine and feminine elements. And that's why when I was a kid growing up in, in East Galway and my grandparents' house in, in Caltra, there was still a lot of the old faith that existed in terms of little superstitions, the acknowledgement of the little people, the she or the banshee that would follow the family, which followed my mother's family. So there was still that sort of connection there, a lot of which we've lost. But the actual belief systems and the philosophy appealed to me because it was more of a balance than modern, I want to say modern faiths. The last couple of thousand years we shape our current society. So I would be more inclined in that direction and I would look at the world from that perspective, if you will. Yeah, well, it makes sense. I, and, and I do, you, what struck me was, was about the Breton laws was women could divorce their husbands. Yep, a year and a day. You just meet on the same hillside, there was, turn your back to each other and walk away. It was total. And they had the same property as well. And actually, funny enough, the Judaic Jewish system is matriarchal as well. So it's passed mm. down through the feminine line rather than the masculine line. And, and you mentioned also about life regression analysis. Past What's life that? regression. It's not a term I'm familiar with. That's okay. <laughs> Past life regression, it's, 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 it is a spiritual element to it as well. So you first got to believe that we're here for a reason. Part of that reason is to evolve ourselves until we eventually go back to that which created us. So all reason creation exists is so that the creator which created it can understand more of itself. So if you think about it, I don't believe in the concept of perfect. I believe in the concept of perfecting. Because even if you become perfect, you then become sterile and then you decompose. But perfecting is an onward journey. So the way I look at it is that which created all creation is actually created creation because it's reflecting on its own self. It's trying to fulfill its own infinite potential. That's a very short way of explaining a very complex concept, right? But the reason for why we're here is to learn about each other, to learn about ourselves, and to evolve and to, to gain knowledge, to experience life in its full, all its aspects, the good and the bad, is what makes us truly spiritual souls in that respect. So the idea of a past life is that you should be, that you may come back and and may repeat a life or take a life in a different form. For example, if you're a man in this life, you might be a woman in the next. If you, because fundamentally as a soul, you're not genderless. You're just part of this infinite conscious energy that exists there. But it's the experiences that make life interesting. So the more experience you have, the more you can, you draw out a life, the more information you carry back to the original source and the creator so it learns about itself in the process. So past life regression is the capacity of using hypnosis to bring people back to past lives, to try and help them remember previous experiences. Now, 
before we go all woo-woo on this, remember I'm an engineer. I don't do woo-woo. So <laughs> there are reasons why a past life session works. One, there's a thing called cryptomnesia, which means that you read a book a long time when you were a kid and you forgot about it. And that's now coming out as a story which you're presenting as a past life. So that's cryptomnesia. That's a valid reason for something happening. Uh, two, your subconscious has created a story as a means of explaining patterns that are happening in your life. And so you tell that story rather than deal with the trauma having to deal with the fact that it's there. So remember, it's therapeutic. It doesn't matter what it is. Once you release it, it's therapeutic. And then there's that small percentage, maybe not so small percentage, where people talk about things, explore things, discover things that, you know what, there's some justification for this. Mm. And from my particular mm. faith, I believe that it, it, it's possible. Yeah. So it's not so much pre-birth analysis. It could be, but it's, it's not aimed at that. It's just from subconscious experiences that exist there in our past, in a previous, not incarnation necessarily, but in our previous it, mental it, it can be either. It can be something. And it's bringing that to the surface. Yeah, it, it's either something that happened to us, but we've forgotten about it, and now we're walk, we're talking through a metaphor we're using to deal with the trauma we have in our own lives, and we don't. And then there's the other aspect, which is uh, very likely real life, past life experiences, and the fact that it exists. There are enough cases to justify a serious consideration of that. And if you look at it from a spiritual perspective, it makes sense because we can't learn everything we need to learn about our existence and about life around us from a single incarnation of 80 or 90 years. Sean, you're a fascinating man. I, I could talk to you all day about this. It, it really is. You're certainly making the most of your, your best life is, is now. And I, I can't wait till when all this is over and we can get out again and we could continue this maybe over a cup of coffee and uh, maybe um, something stronger, Paul. I am. Well, well, I'd start. I'm making the offer of coffee to see what comes back <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And, but look, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. My it's pleasure. been an absolute joy. And for what I'll do is with, I'll put a link to the books on, I presume you people can get them on that. Amazon online as well. They're all, they're all on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah certainly do that and your website is seanweefer.com i presume people can connect with you on linkedin as be, well be, be delighted to meet delighted to meet people on amazon yeah because you've got a lot of videos yeah. online as well people can check them out just to watch, watch a master at work and it's great to watch and I've, I've always enjoyed our chat so thank you so much for being my guest today uh sean weefer it's been an absolute pleasure a distinct pleasure paul thank you for the invitation